from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, where we talk with amazing role models, explore useful tactics and strategies, and consider the big questions behind how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, here for today's show on empathy. Yes, empathy. How we can actually support the people around us when life gets hard and they need us most. We've been talking a lot lately, actually, about talking, especially since the election. How we can learn to communicate more effectively with each other. What this really meant is that we've been learning how to become better listeners and how to express ourselves more effectively. We've talked about learning to seek and accept feedback with Sheila Heen and how to give it constructively. We've talked about the power of radical candor with Gil Scott, with um, Kim Scott, and new ways to negotiate responsibilities at home with our partners, thanks to, thanks to Tiffany Dufu. What we haven't talked about at all, though is how we support those around us in times of crisis, whether it's simply about caring for the people we work with every day or part of a bigger goal to create a workplace that's truly human, where people feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. How we reach out, listen, and respond to others in crisis can have an enormous impact, an impact on their well-being, our relationships with them, and the health of the communities and the organizations in which we work. It's also not for nothing an area that women... Um, are commonly thought to be real superheroes at, that listening, caring, supporting one another is an area where our emotional intelligence should come to play. Yet somehow, when we're talking about supporting each other in crisis, it can be unbelievably hard. Luckily, we have an, a phenomenal guest today. Dr. Kelsey Crow is an expert on all of this. She's a professor at the School of Social Work at California State University and the author of a really amazing and surprisingly delightful book, There Is No Good Card for This, What to Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to the People You Love, which she wrote with her fabulous co-author, Emily McDowell. Kelsey's going to help all of us learn how to navigate this tricky terrain, and in particular, how to bring empathy to work and why it matters so much. Our phones are open at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four eight four two seven eight six six. And we'd really love to hear from you. Tell us, what's the best thing you've seen someone do to support someone else in a time of crisis? What's the best thing that someone's done for you? Was it the colleague who left a care packet of chocolates on your desk when you signed your divorce papers? Or the coworker who mobilized a month's worth of food delivery after her assistant's son had surgery? Acts like these are not only inspiration, they deserve to be celebrated. So give us a call. We'd love to hear about them and join the celebration of the people who committed those acts. If you have a question also about something you hear on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. So with all that, our guest today, Kelsey Crow, author, speaker, professor, and founder of Help Each Other Out, a platform which offers advice, talks, and workshops to give people the tools to help and build relationships when it really counts. This is Kelsey's first book, There's No Good Card for This, and it offers a charmingly illustrated guide to help you move from being a deer in the headlights during a difficult time to be able to respond or simply listen with good judgment and a positive effect. As a whole, her work centers on the idea that being there is often easier than we think. It can be learned and that it matters, which makes me quite excited to say that she is here with us today to help us learn how to be there for one another. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. Oh, I'm so excited to be on the call. Thank you, Laura. I'm oh, happy. My pleasure. So between your work on your online platform, Help Each Other Out, your teaching at Cal State, and this incredible book, you seem to be elevating the role of scholar, writer, entrepreneur to what feels almost like activism. Mm. Um, do you mind my describing it that way? I really do not. Uh, and that's because when I launched this effort formally, which is to sort of mainstream etiquette around how we can be there for each other in difficult times. To make this a mainstream notion, we held a big launch event in 2014 and had, you know, quite a number of people attend, and all of them speaking about it like a movement, like they were at the beginning of a movement. And that is 
definitely what I want. I don't want this work to be the purview of therapists and psychologists. It's not as clearly the book shows <laughs> geared for academics or professionals, although there are a number of professionals um, talking about using this in their classes. Um, but it's for the, every one of us um, to just feel more comfortable uh, tapping into what we know and learning a few things so that we can be even kinder to the people we care about. I think like most um, causes that we get um, fired up about and that um bring out the activists in us. This matters to you personally. Do you mind sharing yeah. a little bit about what motivated your work on this? Sure. It's, you know, it's funny that you say a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these passion projects that we finally commit to, I think, often come with a number of signs that finally, you know, yeah, pull the trigger. Um, so uh, initially, I realized I really had a problem myself with reaching out to others in their difficult time when I was in graduate school and I had a friend diagnosed with breast cancer and she was that prototypical person who you aren't talking anymore, but you used to talk a lot, you admire each other. And I didn't know if it was my place to reach out and ask her how she was doing. And being in a graduate program at the time, I figured the way to solve this problem was to research my way out of it <laughs> and begin asking people through survey and interviews, you know, what worked for you in your difficult time to help me feel comfortable knowing if I had a place in Heidi's life. And I tried doing that uh, on the margins of a policy career and a family, and then got breast cancer myself, and I was on the receiving end of so many kindnesses from people who came, you know, out of the woodwork from college to, you know, colleagues and on and on, and that was the final sign that said, Kelsey, are you going to really commit to this work or not? Because I so valued what I was receiving, and it polluted so much with what was in my research findings the small gestures that make a big difference, how you don't need an engraved invitation to be there. All of these things that I started feeling um, and receiving, I wanted to replicate in the world. So that experience with cancer, both not knowing what to do for someone else and then having it myself, really um, bookends sort of why I decided to do this work. But a lot of us can go through either or even both of those experiences and not necessarily do all that I've done, which is all this research and also designing empathy boot camp workshops, which are just beautiful experiences and, and um, are the basis of the book. Uh, and that kind of goes into the, the deeper reason why I did this work. And it was really that despite my not knowing what to do for my friend Heidi when she was in her difficult time, it wasn't because I didn't know grief, right? It actually, I had no grief. It just didn't equip me to know what to do, but it did help me know that it matters. And that other layer was a loss that I had had when I was 19. Uh, my mother was my only parent and really my only family member. Uh, my extended family I didn't know very well, and my grandparents were deceased, and there were no aunts or uncles. I grew up with her, and when I was 19, she stopped taking her psychotropic medication. She had um, pretty severe mental illness that until then was somewhat managed. And by the time I was 23, uh, her paranoia turned on me completely, and our very close, profound relationship became completely estranged. And I had no more family. And uh, as I walked right about in the book, uh, that kind of loss where there's a loss of the mind mm -hmm. has no ritual for mourning. We don't know what to do for somebody who's experiencing that kind of loss. Do you write a card? Do you acknowledge it? Uh, because it's not the same as when there's a dead body. Right, but and it's still a profound personal loss. It's a huge and heartbreaking, loss. and it was to it was so heartbreaking, of course. And I had no other family to go over it with, um, so all of a sudden there was no financial security, no place to go when I was leaving the Peace Corps from West Africa. 
no fridge to raid, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Uh, didn't know where I'd be for the holidays. And that that experience um, left me really wanting unconditional love. But what I felt so profoundly was shame about it, shame for that desire. I didn't, I didn't feel okay with it. And so I tried to bury it. And I never even acknowledged to almost anybody in my life that I had a mother with mental illness, that I didn't have family. It was really only my closest friends that knew. Uh, and I think when I experienced that time with Heidi, and it was like one upon multiple experiences of me shying away, I realized I can't contribute to anybody's isolation anymore. And it was also a chance for me to do some of my own healing in terms of acknowledging that I wasn't a flawed person for wanting support and love in my life when I was alone. No, you were just truly human. human. (laughs) (laughs) That is just human. But what's so... And what I know from doing my workshops and from my interviews, what I know is that we all feel like a burden when we're in a really difficult emotional time. Uh, We are afraid to be in need. We are afraid to being pitied. We are afraid of being vulnerable. And we feel shame when someone gives us advice or does something that dismisses our experience and and ironically it's at the very time when we should we most need support and people would like to help us if we could move past it exactly Exactly. By the way, I'm talking with Kelsey Crow, who is an author, speaker, professor, and founder of not just Help Each Other Out, but the writer of There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. If you have been through something like Kelsey described, um, your own painful experience where you didn't know how to reach out for help. Give us a call. We'd love to hear about it. We'd love to learn how did your friends and family help? How did you break through to get the help that you needed? You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Kelsey, when I was reading about this in the book, um, there was, I was so deeply moved by it, understanding that because there are a lot of interesting questions here, and I want to kind of list them out so that we can um, kind of, you know, figure out how to address them all with a little bit of time that we have. You know, we've got the stigma that comes, the perceived stigma around mental illness and the various ways that it creates loss um, for the people who love us if we're the ones experiencing it um, or the way we've lost that person. Then there's also the question of knowing to ask for help. And do we even recognize it when it comes our way? In the book, you told um, a a kind of bittersweet story about um, a friend of your mom's. Would you mind sharing it with us in a letter that you got in the Peace Corps? Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks for asking about it. Um, So the the book is obviously from the title. (laughs) Very long title. (laughs) We wanted to be really clear. (laughs) The book is um, for people who want to comfort um, somebody else in their difficult time. But it does talk a little bit about what it means to also receive help. Uh, And the reason that it does that is so that we can, in learning to receive help and trusting what we receive, also then trust what we can give and sort of the value of what we give. So more of that is in the book. But that lesson about how to receive help, which is different than learning how to ask for help. Yeah. Asking for help is when you ask literally for help, childcare, uh, work, you know, someone to pick up the work slack, things like that. But so much of the comfort that we receive in our darkest hours are from Facts that we never asked for. They're, they're serendipitous, spontaneous surprises. They're flowers left at your doorstep. They're uh, a listening, somebody listening to you on the bus when you never even expected to open up about something. Uh, so it's not always asking for help. It's noticing what, in fact, we are being given. And that actually can be a very, very 
difficult thing to do. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this quote, um, and he wrote a book about called A Grief Observed about the loss of his wife to cancer. And he said about grief, he said, you are like the dying, the drowning man whose own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you most need to hear. Which is when we are drowning, we often can't even <laughs> be rescued, right? Right. So, and, so in other words, it, that the grief itself, the pain that we're feeling is so powerful that it kind of obliterates our ability to take in other input. And yeah. so even if help is coming our way, we may not always tune in and accept it because we can't get past the intensity of what we're feeling. Exactly. We're not noticing it. And so I think that's so important then to practice noticing what we receive. And I learned this, like you wrote, like you described, the hard way. Um, (laughs) Isn't that how we learn most things? Right? (laughs) There are no easy lessons, really. Although I'm trying to make them with this book. But um, so... I, you know, had that narrative where there was nobody for me when I lost my mother. And and that, you know, in large part felt true, was true. But I learned that that wasn't entirely true. When uh, 15 years after I had written a letter to my mother's very good friend uh, while I was in the Peace Corps, I wrote her. And of course, I didn't say, I don't have a place to stay when I return. Can I stay with you? I didn't ask her that. I just said, I don't know where to go home to. I don't know where to book my ticket. And she wrote a letter back. This is, you know, before email. And she didn't offer me a place to stay. And that really hurt. When I got that letter, I was so disappointed. And I found that letter 15 years later. And she didn't offer me a place to stay. But what she did offer, what she said in that letter was, Everybody needs a mom, and I'm going to be your mom. So she was actually saying something bigger to you, but you didn't hear it at the time. I didn't hear it. I didn't notice it. And when I saw that letter, it dawned on me, how many things are people offering me? How many things are many of us in our dark hours being offered that we do not notice? Right, because we don't know how. And it's probably a combination of... You know, like you and C.S. Lewis described, it's the intensity of our grief. So it's um, kind of dulled our ability to take stuff in because we're also so um, needy at those moments, but also that people don't know how to give. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But say, too, that when someone gives, we may expect what they give to look like X, Y, and Z. Mm hmm. Right? Like, you should be able to listen to me. You should offer to drive me to chemo. You should uh, help me with the funeral arrangements. But what that person is capable of giving may be something very different, which is a playlist or uh, entertaining, you know, movie invitation or something very different. And the book taps into very deeply how can we offer our authentic gift to somebody, which is not always what that person needs, but is what we know how to give. And to the extent that both us in the position to receive can appreciate someone's authentic gift, not expect it to look like one thing, but appreciate what that person actually can authentically give, um, the easier we are to give to. And by the same token, the more we can trust what we can offer. (laughs) <laughs> we have to, right? We have to right. trust in the value of our small gifts. I used to think, for example, that any time someone was sick, that I had to cook them a casserole. And is it because you make magic casseroles? I wish. <laughs> in fact, I'm a terrible cook, and cooking makes me really stressed. Stressed. And so, to, first of all, to even offer somebody a meal was like I would hesitate. My finger would be on the cursor. You know, do I do? Oh, okay, I'm going to offer it. <laughs> Twice I forgot to deliver it. And when I would do it, I would make all these pronouncements to my friends and my husband. I'm making a dish. I, you know, clear the calendar. I've got, you know, like it was just all of this. Mission critical. Yes. (laughs) 
And uh, but that's what I thought you do. And it, it honest, and, it, and then all all of that for like a not very good casserole at the end of it. <laughs> so, uh, but then when I realized through my research and in the course of engaging in this work with the empathy boot camps, that what matters is really for me to give what I like to give and know how to give. Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Dr. Kelsey Crow, professor of social work at Cal State and co-author of There is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. If you have a question about giving the kind of help that actually helps, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You know, as you're talking, Kelsey, about this, it's almost like the a gap, this ironic gap between what we need and what people are trying to give us and how we can't connect around it. And mm-hmm. we know that this happens in real life. We recently had Tiffany Dufu on the show who was talking about how she navigated the learning to talk with her husband about how to share partnership at home. Mm-hmm. So we know that these these can be difficult conversations, even when we're dealing with things like who's opening the mail or right. who's, <laughs> so true. Right, or who's taking on the new project at work. Mm-hmm. Um, then yeah. if you add to it the complex intensity of loss and crisis, it gets even harder. Mm-hmm. And now let's bring that complex intensity of loss and crisis. We're now in the workplace and this is with our colleagues. Right. How how do we navigate it there? Because it seems like this and in the book you talk and I highly recommend this. Really. Listeners, get it, get a copy, give it to the people you know who are trying to help or who could benefit from getting from learning how to listen. Um you talk at length about um how we can connect with one another by being open. Yet it suggests a kind of openness that many of us have been trained to squash in the workplace. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, in the in the bulk of our lives, and especially in the workplace, we're being paid to be problem solvers. We're being paid to be productive, mm-hmm. to, to get things done, and to do it fast. Um, and when, and that's great. And even as friends, we want friends to have opinions, and often we want to engage in lively debate about which movie stars the hottest or, <laughs> you know, who's going to win the Oscars. So, you know, we, we want to engage in debate um, and hopefully have uh, the diversity of opinion. It makes life interesting. And at work, it's what we're paid to do very often. And it's what makes so, us feel valued at work. It makes us feel valued. If we can't fix problem after problem, then what are we doing there? Right. So uh, I certainly, uh, and as a sort of problem solver myself in the workplace, I certainly appreciate that perspective. The thing that we are not so well trained to do in our culture is be around somebody in their time of loss, of emotional vulnerability. And when I say loss, that could be actual loss of a person. It could be divorce. It could be miscarriage. It could be any kind of emotional hardship where things are not as we thought they would be. Mm-hmm. And when someone is experiencing that, and we are in a position to witness it, often our first impulse is to fix it. I see a problem. I want to fix it. The workplace, especially, that's what I'm paid to do, is fix problems. But if you're my colleague and you're at work, and you're there with an understandably broken heart, I'm guessing that's not one of those things I can actually fix. Exactly, exactly. And this is a thing that we'll do to our colleague in the workplace is try and fix it. And we'll also do it to our friend or our relative, our neighbor, anyone who is sharing an emotionally vulnerable subject. We try and fix it for them. And this is really one domain in life where fixing it is actually probably the lowest priority on the list of how you can be supportive. It doesn't mean you can't try and help someone fix their problem, but it's certainly not the number one thing to do. Uh, If you are at all collegial with this person, that you have shared complaints about the boss or uh, work on projects together over a long period of time, 
or you even admire somebody's work and just respect them deeply, if you have that type of relationship where when they are going through something difficult, you then feel concerned and you care, you are very well in a position to ask, how are they doing with their difficult time? And not with the interest of them being able to fix it for them, but simply to acknowledge their pain and to listen to it. And being in that space of just listening to somebody's difficult time is not something we're used to in any facet of our lives, but it's something we all can practice. And it's actually a lot easier to do than finding that elusive, useful thing to say. Um, And as I describe in the book, it's honestly just asking someone a fairly specific question like, how are you doing today? Mm. What's that like for you? Uh, something that helps people communicate specifically what they're going through, and then wait three seconds before you respond. Uh, and let the silence uh, give room for them to maybe say even a little bit more about how they're feeling. And certainly for them to not feel that you're going to respond with some kind of fix-it solution. Absolutely. Most of the time, that's what somebody uh, least wants from you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Kelsey, we have Adrian calling from Washington, D.C. Adrian, thanks so much for listening to Women at Work and calling in. What's on your mind? I just wanted to make a comment regarding um, how people handle grief. Um, both my parents have passed recently, and what I find is that unless the person that you're talking to has had a similar experience, they are, it's very hard for them to connect. And so I equate that when I hear of, you know, a hundred Syrian people died, it really doesn't affect anybody because it doesn't happen close by in our family realm, in our community. So I find it very strange to be able to communicate with people that don't know the kind of grief I am going through. Mm. 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 Yeah, I think it's not uncommon, and I also write about this in the book, uh, either for you to feel when you share that kind of um, news with somebody, either to feel that they're pitying you, (laughs) where their condolences come with a kind of distance, like, I'm so sorry, that's so sad. And somehow in that communication, there's, and that would never happen to me. Uh, or else, uh, effort to try to, honestly, to diminish what has happened. Right, because uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it may be um, too intense to comprehend or to exactly. face in that moment. Um, we exactly. need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to follow up on this topic and talk more about compassion and empathy and how we learn to listen. If you'd like to share your stories with us, give us a call, one 844 942 Listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're talking about how to be there for each other during times of crisis, how we give the help that really helps, and how we do this actually in the workplace, where we hopefully can channel our empathy, our compassion, our sympathy, and put it to good use by learning how to listen and how to give in a whole new way. Helping us navigate all of this is the extraordinary Dr. Kelsey Crow. She's a professor of social work at Cal State and co-author of There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, 
awful and unfair to people you love. Um, Before the break, we um, had the great gift of Adrian called in to talk to us about some of his questions about um, empathy and compassion. If you'd like to join in the conversation, we'd love to know what your experiences are at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And with that, I'll say uh, welcome back. I'm so glad to have you on Women at Work, Kelsey. Thank you. Thank you. So we didn't. We ran out of a little time in talking about Adrian's question. Um, would you mind picking up where we left off with that? Sure. Uh, you know, just one one thing that I talk about in the book uh, is about compassion and empathy. So you know, he said, for example, that people who maybe haven't been through the same experience as him often that there's a disconnect and. I think many of us are afraid to reach out to somebody whose experience is something we we haven't had. Uh, if I've never been through a divorce, for example, if I've never had cancer, I don't know what to say to this person. And so maybe I should say nothing because I'll say or do the wrong thing and make it worse. So I think that us to have expected of ourselves that we have been in the same situation as somebody else to connect with them is, is sort of a bad way to go because we're really going to inhibit uh, our acts of empathy <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and one way that I think that we can do that is really about trusting that our kindness is our credential. That people are not looking for our expertise in a subject matter to be of comfort to them. And you'll even find that in volunteer groups where they're training peers, like people who've had cancer, to the uh, emotional support to someone else with cancer, that they have to undo some of their own learnings about their own experience with cancer because it's not like somebody else's. Sometimes we can project what we think we know onto somebody else. So you don't really have to have had the same experience to be supportive. But what we do have is knowledge about suffering. Mm -hmm. So, for example, say you've never been through a divorce. But you may know what it means to have lost somebody you love. Or you may know what it means to become financially insecure all of a sudden. Or to not know where you're going to live. Or to have some kind of insecurity about how you're parenting your child. There are things that we can tap into as core experiences that come with any kind of loss that we can use to imagine What might this other person, in some experience that seems rather different, be feeling underneath that I have some familiarity with? And that is where you use empathy, where you start imagining what might this person be feeling. And you can imagine that because you've experienced it maybe in some other situation. How how is empathy different than compassion? Well, compassion, you know, there's so many theories about empathy and compassion. Uh, and you, there's a whole scholarship, you know, rabbit hole around each of these areas. So, um, but I like this very simple definition that uh, is used by a lot of researchers at the University of Michigan's Compassion Lab, which is that compassion is to notice, feel, and respond. That you notice somebody's suffering, you can feel something. It's not that you feel the exact thing as someone else. If you're as in grief as someone else, as much grief, then you can't be that helpful. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that you, you do feel some tinge of their grief, and that's called emotional resonance, when you feel um, some kind of tinge of what that person is feeling. And then you respond. You're not just sending, sitting there kind of sending good vibes, unless you actively are sending goodbye. That's what you're trying to do. (laughs) Right. But so, and then it comes with a response. And that usually then means that response is going to be a little inconvenient. Mm, Even if it's, even if it's going over to somebody's cubicle or sending an email or leaving them a donut at their desk, it's going to mean going just a little bit out of your way. Which is part of why it matters. You know, (laughs) and, and empathy is where you, um, you have sort of compassion, notice, feel, and respond. But empathy is when you imagine what somebody might be going through. And that is a mental muscle that we use. It's, it's perspective taking, where you actually use your mind to think, hmm, 
what might this person be going through? Let me do a little examination on that and then have some deeper insight into what they might feel. So, and when you have that, you can be then more compassionate. So when we're at work, um, mm-hmm. first of all, we're used to being in a structure at work where we try not to notice the things that are personal. We try right. and block out the things that we feel, and we try yeah. to respond <laughs> effectively and impactfully to the duties that have been given to us. <laughs> And Sounds so like we have a next book together. Yes. <laughs> um, but what's I think particularly intriguing and important about um, what you're sharing with us is that we work alongside people that we grow to care for, that we spend an enormous amount of our time with, who are important humans in our world. And um, noticing them and paying attention to what people are going through, having compassion for them is, A, not a bad thing to be doing at work. There's a lot of discussion about how, in general, those are some rules that would benefit from change. Mm-hmm. But that, in particular, we have to throw out the work paradigm um, and bring in the human paradigm into these relationships. And we have to find ways to do it that we can navigate, that can be helpful, but that also still stay appropriate, right? Right, right. You know, and it's even, you know, taking some perspective on uh, what we're trading, because it's not as though uh, by taking the time to go over to somebody's desk and say, hey, I heard about, you know, your dad, and I just want to say I'm really sorry, that we've then just thrown the whole work production paradigm <laughs> out the window. Right. We haven't you put know? on our shorts and gone to the beach. We're <laughs> not know, at the bar. We would just as easily talk about, you know, the Giants game last night or, you know, whatever else it is that lubricates social relationships mm-hmm. uh, that we all know we need if we are to trust one another and co-create. So, you know, there's a lot of research around how trusting relationships are more creative, productive relationships. And it's also very clear from uh, what I've heard in my research and even from Sheryl Sandberg's post, Facebook mm-hmm. post, about her extended bereavement policy, the number of comments uh, on that Facebook post about the make-or-break relationship between an employee and their company based on how company um, employees responded in a time of crisis, it all shows that a little kindness in times of vulnerability goes a long way. Recognizing, however, it's hard for us to be vulnerable in the workplace. Mm-hmm. We fear being pitied. We fear being the underdog. We fear a perception that we are less competent than we were because we are in grief or because we are parenting. We fear stigma when there's a divorce. What does that say about how I can handle my work relationships? Um, you know, there's. There's a lot of fear of judgment about our competency uh, that can make us vulnerable about um, being in these difficult times. And yet, and yet, you cannot escape it. You have the person ducking out of office meetings to handle attorney calls, juggling, you know, mortgage payment questions when you are redoing your loan. You have people making funeral arrangements uh, while step and stepping out of the elevator to do so, you, you can't escape that our personal tragedies impact our work life, it's especially when they are not um, something that just happens in a brief moment in time, but that we live with over time. Yes, and, yes, whether practical in practical means matters or emotional. Yes, whether we're carrying grief or we're it's ongoing care for a sick child. Um, yes. Yeah. And then there's the additional irony of um, what we try and do with our emotions as women. Um, Mm -hmm. Before I explore that a little bit more, I just want to note I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. And I'm talking with Dr. Kelsey Crow, professor of social work at Cal State University and co-author of There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. Um, If you have a question or would like to share your stories about these experiences, please give us a call. We'd really love to have you join in the conversation. That's 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Kelsey, going back to this, you know, as we're grieving or coping, 
we're carrying all these emotions inside of us. And that's on top of the fact that many women have been instructed over time to get a grip on their emotions, not be emotional at work. And um, and at the same time, we're also learning, you know, thanks to Sally Krawcheck's great new book, that bringing the fact that we're women into the workplace can actually be an asset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you help me make sense out of this? How do we take our compassion and our sensitivity and put it to good and appropriate use in these kinds of contexts? Well, it's interesting because uh, men really get a lot out of my workshops. It's 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 just such a great sort of learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is mo- more women that enroll. <laughs> That's interesting. So, you know, so by, by nature, I think we are drawn to this question and to wanting to be a part of the solution about comforting people in their difficult time. And, of course, that carries over into the workplace. And our comfort with vulnerability and mentorship mm-hmm. and uh, support and recognizing the kind of emboldening that we need when we're vulnerable, um, that, that, that matters so much. And there is a stigma, of course, to the sort of, let's say, feminine side of um, emotions, which are, can be crying. And yet, at the same time, anger is also a sign of depression and grief. Mm. Uh, there are ways that people may be exhibiting emotions based on what's going on at home, so to speak that also are signs of grief. And we have to learn to recognize and deal with all of them, not just the the person that's weeping. And that actually is, I think, a lesson even for women to come to see. When we're... Go ahead. Sorry, Kelsey. That that even anger uh, is a a symptom of of a a vulnerability. It's a piece of information. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, When we're... In the workplace, and we're starting to see, and we either know that people have gone through something, or we can see these signs that somebody's struggling. Um, we, you know, got word through the grapevine. We saw them crying at their desks. Um, what's the appropriate way to reach out and offer support or help? How do we start the conversation? Yeah. Walking over and just saying, hey, (laughs) and acknowledging somebody's grief is really valuable. That person may not want to talk to you about it. If they don't want to talk to you about it, that doesn't mean you were wrong to connect. They will sure appreciate your kindness that compelled you to try. And... Uh, so I think just simple acknowledgement goes a really, really long way. If you don't know each other very well, but you know that they are in general grieving, you can do something lighter than talking with them, which is to just leave a card. Mm-hmm. Or you could leave them their favorite donut on their desk. <laughs> There's a, a marvelous part of your book where um, you have a a list of all different kinds of gestures that can be made from different people in your life. And I found them, A, imaginative, um, but also delightful and impactful. And they range from the very small to the very big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those come from the gesture wall. Uh, so in my empathy boot camps, I have prompts. And one of the prompts is, what is something that a colleague did for you in your difficult time? Mm-hmm. And they write it out, and then you put it up on the wall. And when you see the array of, you know, 50 cards with all of these gestures that made a difference, it's extremely moving. It's even hilarious. It's, it's a real uh, wonderful experience in, in humanity, honestly, and how little it takes. Because a lot of times people are recalling these gestures that were made several years ago. Uh, so um, it is. I'm glad that you appreciate that part of the book. I also uh, really appreciate that experience in the workshop. Yeah, it's. I mean, just to give the listener some sense of it, it ranges from things like 
offering to donate paid time off when um, the writer was close to running out. Like that's a huge and impactful gift that colleagues could give. And I'm embarrassed I never would have thought of it until I read this. But now I think there should be campaigns for it. And there are in some workplaces, um, Monica Warline and Jane Dutton, who write in this area um, as, you know, scholars in this area of compassion in the workplace, they talk about them as compassion architects. These people who are not formally in the org chart as leaders, but who can emerge as leaders to galvanize care. Uh, That person that gets group cards signed, Mm -hmm. that gets flowers to the hospital bed, that gets... um, checks in a few weeks later down the road or who manages communication and finds out how much do you want employees to know? Yeah, there was... What what can I share or not share? I mean, to give an example from here at Wharton, because I was so touched and impressed by my colleagues, um, one colleague's son had been in a terrible house fire, had lost friends, was hospitalized himself. And another one of her colleagues reached out to all of us, and she set up a system so that we could all register for a night where we would bring food to the house because Mm -hmm. she was spending so much time at the hospital with her son. Nobody was there to cook. And so she set it up so that the Wharton team got in line, and we got food over there. And at a time when our heart was breaking for them, we didn't know how to help, but it helped us feel like we were doing something. And it seemed to really be an asset. They may not have right. always liked what they what we cooked, but they knew we loved them. Yes, that's what matters the most. And what's amazing is that that woman, your colleague, never would have asked for that. No. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So that's where we have to get confident and just offer it. Does that make sense? Like. It- Yes. So colleagues, especially, we will not be asked by a colleague for this kind of help or that kind of help. Uh, It's seen as weakness, and we are not wanting to um, be that weak person in the office place. So the more that we can just extend these things, and rather matter-of-factly, without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of pity... um, And not expecting gorgeous thank-you notes. Oh, never expect a thank-you note. Right. Never, 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 never. You got to uh, do it with a whole heart. Yes, it's not transactional. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, In fact, uh, um, around the, the question of thank you notes, and I think this is just something for us to remember as we trust the power of our small gestures. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the work that I've done, and this is sort of the social movement piece, is create these public art exhibits where uh, there's. A portrait of somebody who's gone through a difficult time, like with cancer or loss of a loved one, and a story of a gesture that got them through it. We have many of these uh, portraits and gestures, stories of gestures made into posters. Neighborhoods adopt these in mass in a neighborhood corridor and display them in their windows. And then other gestures are posted up by neighborhood residents. So we call them public art exhibits on being there. Oh, that's awesome. Several of them in San Francisco and in New York. And yeah, Funny thing is, I mean, people who've gone through all the trouble of creating this poster to honor, to share this gesture, almost all of them said, you know what, I never thanked that person. Because it's just, I think when you're going through that stuff, it's so, like you were talking about before, grief and that pain um, keeps us deep inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. And these are all acts that are penetrating that. They're coming into our dark place and hopefully bringing just a little more light. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we should always, if we don't get a thank you, in fact, we should say, please don't thank me. Please, no need to call back. No right. need to write a Reduce thank you the note. burden of another reduce thing to the, do. Reduce the burden and trust that our gesture mattered. And don't don't wait to hear thanks before we decide, oh, I should do that again for somebody. Absolutely. Trust, you know? And along the lines of trusting that what you do matters. You know, we've noted between the month of meals or the paid time off, those are big productive gestures. But they're not the only type of gesture that matters. Small mm-hmm. stuff counts, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the workplace gestures that I hear, a woman who said uh, that she casually mentioned to a colleague, She didn't talk about her miscarriage much at work. She didn't, you know, want to. Uh, She had casually mentioned for some reason, tomorrow would have been my due date. And the next day, she found flowers on her desk. Oh, my gosh. That whoever heard that was really listening. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and uh, an, another colleague who had been assaulted on the street. She had started um, work just a couple of weeks prior, and she was really shaken up about it. And a colleague said, hey, let's go get some coffee. And she bought her a cookie. Like, just simple things <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't take a, a, an org overhaul. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> to, to be kind. But there are, I mean, on Cheryl's Facebook, um, Facebook feed, there are examples of companies that have really made it a significant practice. Uh, examples of people whose spouse died and the company decides to con- maintain that insur- health insurance for the family for a year, even wow. two years. Um, you know, there, there are practices like that happening, or the CEO of a company will call somebody who's lost somebody um, and just reach out within 48 hours. Th- there are companies that are practicing this, and Facebook with its, you know, new policy of, you know, 20 days of bereavement leave. Right. Um, and you know what, so you're there br- are big things you can do. Yes, and you're bringing up actually an important point of a small thing that somebody in a big role can do. And, I, and we mm. only have a few minutes left, but let's talk a little bit about that relationship between employees and employer, that to have the boss take the time to call and express sympathy matters. Mm. Oh, it matters so much. In fact, I was just uh, two days ago in a coffee shop with a woman uh, who seemed like she had gone through a pretty big injury. Both her uh, arm and leg were injured. And she said, I can't believe my boss didn't even ask how I was. Right. So it's A, just heartless, but B, it's also going to make you feel not cared for or respected within the organization. Absolutely. That's no way to build loyalty. Absolutely. What about on the flip side? Um, that, you know, if we're throwing out some of the normal rules, if we know that the people higher up than us in the ecosystem, um, our bosses, their bosses, have gone through something traumatic, is it okay for us to reach up to them and share our condolences, our support? Never okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, no. got that one wrong. <laughs> no, 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 it's... And that is where you're right. There's the hierarchical relationship where we certainly don't know if our boss wants us to expose and admit that something vulnerable is happening in their life. But in fact, it's a super humane way to be because actually, believe it or not, bosses are human too. (laughs) And and, uh, care from employees makes a huge difference. And in the book, I kind of go through different types of difficult Mm -hmm. times and where some are more obviously public and some a bit more private and more um, tricky around, you know, how around areas of discretion. But certainly, especially around something like loss, you can always, always acknowledge it and, and do any kind of grand gesture or small gesture that's in your heart. Right. Cause, um, and, and Kelsey... Even actually as a teacher, as a professor, all of my um, students, when I was uh, diagnosed with cancer, sent me a gift basket of organic uh, uh, products, cleaning products and stuff. And I was just so touched. See, it's these kinds of gestures and acts that can make all the difference in the world. Kelsey, I'm so sorry we're running out of time. I loved having you on Women at Work. Oh, I loved it, Thank too. You. Thank you. And Thank if, you. And if you want to learn more about Kelsey's great wisdom, there's no good card for this, what to say and do when life is scary, awful, and unfair to people you love. I'm Laura Arrow, and this has been Women at Work on Business Radio, SiriusXM.com. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. You got a friend in me.